Hello and welcome to the very first What's That Noise podcast. I'm your host, Derek Silva, sitting here with my good friend, my colleague, and incredible researcher, Dr. Tommy Cook. How are you doing today, Tommy? I'm fantastic. I'm really excited to be sitting in my kitchen with you, listening to the fridge running in the background, the electronic cat water dispenser going as well. This is a really unique place to start a podcast. Especially one about noise. There's so many different things that I could say about noise that interest me, but I think generally speaking, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the sound of the refrigerator or the cat's electronic water bowl. <laughs> I, I think what's interesting for, about noise for me is thinking about confusion, thinking about ambiguity, thinking about the, the lack of understanding or awareness that seems to be inherent in so many things that we, we talk about and engage with on a daily basis, right? So it really isn't just about the sound of the room, all the little fussy, fiddly things that are going on. It's, it's about trying to make sense of news, trying to make sense of daily events like uh, the Cambridge Analytica affair, which I know we're going, and I hope we're going to talk about today. We're definitely going to be talking about that today. I think the premise of the show is trying to find different interpretations of noise, of confusion, and trying to find a, a way that we can deal with it and find some clarity. The fuzziness, right? It's the fuzziness of everything that we sort of see and hear around us that's super, super interesting. Uh, and I think we're going to talk about some fuzziness around Cambridge Analytica. I think we're going to talk about a few other things. But before we do that, I think we have to let our listeners, our probably few listeners right now, <laughs> but hopefully uh, a few more uh, in, in a little while, let them know what we're about. Um, uh, so why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thank you for your kind introduction at the beginning there. That was a bit humbling. Uh, I'm from London. I'm from the city that we're recording this podcast in. The great city of London, Ontario, Canada. I grew up in the West End, and I, I went to a small West End public school and a small West End high school, and I went to a small satellite college at the University of Western Ontario called King's University College, where you and I both happen to be professors at. Uh, doing my undergrad there allowed me to springboard into graduate school, where I got to study American politics at the master's level. And then I went to York for a while in Toronto. And I studied uh, all sorts of crazy things, man. The history of science and technology, uh, a little bit of political studies here, international relations there, a lot in communications theory, and a lot on surveillance and a lot of uh, digital privacy. And having finished my, uh, my doctorate just last summer in communication studies, uh, I find it really fascinating to be able to sit down and, and talk to you about where we can find clarity and noise in everyday life. Uh, I'm really motivated to get to this point of having this conversation with you, you know, just by virtue of my background alone. But um, I, I also think that I'm motivated to be here and, and explore these kinds of noise issues with you on a podcast because I don't really know how my training helps me make sense of them anymore. I have ideas. I have insights from theory. I have insights from my own pedagogy, the way I teach in the classroom. I have insights that I've learned from picking up random books here and there. But I still don't feel like it's enough. I still feel like I'm just beginning to understand what's at stake when somebody tries to identify a noise source and the tools that they use to make sense of what's going on in and around it. So that's me. That's why I'm here. How about you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about 
why you're having a beer at my kitchen table with me right now. <laughs> While watching the Leaf game, I think. While watching the Leaf game. Uh, so to start it off, I am a massive Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So for anyone who is not, you can probably turn off the pod at this point. Um, but <laughs> yes, uh, so I'm super excited to be starting this pod. I think uh, that uh, particularly questions around noise and fuzziness and, and blind spots and on the fence uh, uh, speak, if you will, is uh, still absolutely fascinating uh, to me. But what brings me here today uh, is a whole sort of a whole bunch of different things happening in my life. Uh, I originally wanted to be a police officer. Can you believe that? I, I thought I heard that about you when you were being interviewed for your position as assistant professor at uh, King's University College's sociology department. This guy that had a job as a CBSA agent, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I was, a, I was a student border services agent for a while. I can't talk too much about that uh, in a public forum. Well, I'll but pick on you to do so anyway, so we'll see how I, that goes. There's some noise there, that's for sure. Um, but I wanted to be a, a police officer when I first uh, started under my uh, post-secondary uh, career. And I went to UOIT in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada, and I met some incredible people there that kind of steered me along a different route, if you will, uh, into the academic realm a little bit. And I really got excited about research and excited about answering questions and all of these things. And then I decided to go, you know what, I'm going to stop trying to be a police officer and I'm going to move into uh, try uh, at an academic career. Uh, so I went to Carleton University for my master's, uh, studied under some amazing people, learned some amazing things, did some amazing reading. Uh, and then I thought, you know what, what's the best way to learn about life? Go to the southern United States of America. Uh, and I went and uh, I enrolled in the University of South Carolina uh, for my own doctorate. And I, I recently graduated uh, in sociology under the, the guidance of Matthew DeFlem, who's a, a, a famous scholar of uh, terrorism and policing. Uh, and that kind of brought me back here. Uh, as you mentioned, I am a, a professor uh, here in London, Ontario, Canada, the beautiful London, Ontario. The great city of London, Ontario. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. great. Um, but uh, it's also brought us together, uh, and which is really interesting. And uh, for the listeners, we hadn't known each other. Tommy uh, and I hadn't known each other. Uh, uh, I think we met, what, three, four months ago, maybe? You know, it feels like uh, it was quite a bit longer than that because we've had so many productive, interesting conversations at different tables with different uh, alcoholic beverages. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it must be something like three or four months. I think you and I uh, first started getting to know one another around Christmas. Yeah, yeah, so end of twenty seventeen. Yeah, maybe a little bit before Christmas. Yeah, okay. So that's where where we're at. That's 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 how we get to here. But you know, I, I I've I've often wondered about you know you going down to the states, and I, I want to open up a little bit of conversation here. Absolutely. You go down to the states after you work at the CBSA, and I'm wondering about noise already. Why, why did you want to get out of the CBSA? Why would you make the jump? into into academics so part of the reason why i got out of the i think i viewed my career 
in law enforcement in general. Uh, not necessarily, I might have been doing a job of, uh, of a border officer, but my career was much more aligned with, I just wanted to be a law enforcement officer. Um, and I got out of that because of the sort of anti-authority that goes in my soul, if you will. Uh, I'm not really one for authority, uh, and uh, that doesn't really fit well with uh, the law enforcement uh, field. So I, I moved out of that relatively quickly once I realized uh, that I can be a little bit anti-authority while researching and while doing interesting things and answering the questions of fuzziness and blurriness that I was interested in. Did you find certain components of the job, of the practice, confusing? Absolutely. Uh, particularly around risk factors and creating uh, identity profiles of particular people. Um, it's very noisy. It's very blurry. It's very subjective. That was what I really became sort of alienated from as an employee. It's, it's where I moved away um, in terms of uh, I didn't want to get involved in the, the, the muddy application of subjective standards of risk on other people. I didn't want to get involved in the, the risk profiling that was happening at the border. Uh, and that kind of brings me into my research, which focuses on that very, very question. It's interesting that the transition from not wanting to be subjected to discerning risk or deciding risk factors amongst people you don't know would lead you to academics. And I, I wonder if part of the catalyst then for you and I even sitting down as a result of your transition and getting into uh, the academic world is the position of, of risk in relation to noise itself. Risk management, as far as I understand it, from a security perspective, a state security perspective, is about trying to figure out whether or not someone's going to do wrong by the people crossing to the other side of the border. There, there's something interesting there about the impetus of just not knowing whether or not somebody's going to be problematic. But that's it for you. It's black and white. You just have to make a decision. Was that something that you anticipated running into often? I didn't, and I didn't necessarily even think about it until I started to think about it. I didn't even think about how my subjective assessment of reality, of my particular reality as a law enforcement officer, was actually... Uh, a process of training and a process of, uh, I'm not going to say indoctrination, but uh, a, a part of a particular narrative of what that threat or what that risk actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that brings me into the realm of what I am interested in now and how those risk factors or the, how those risk profiles are even constructed in the first place. And whose knowledge is being used and how do we construct that knowledge and kind of trying to uh, critique how we understand how that knowledge is being, being uh, uh, constructed uh, and then applied at, at places like the border. And the border is not the only one. Uh, the border is but one place where some of these uh, things are happening. It's also happening in, inside of our communities. Uh, it's also happening uh, in financial regulation uh, institutions and a whole bunch of different spheres uh, that these profiles are being constructed in. I'm interested in, in critiquing them or, or, or at least making them observable. 
you find now in your position as an academic the ability to look back at your experience as a CBSA agent. Absolutely. And build clarity, find clarity, construct clarity, whatever the nuts that means. One of the premises of the, the podcast itself and a title like What's That Noise is being able to decide what is confusing. It could be a number of things, but they need to be articulated. Part of what motivates me to work with noise as a specific uh, target point for a podcast like this is that noise, by definition, regardless of who you talk to, is a lack of discernibility. It's not something that you can quite put your finger on. It is the fuzziness, as you said. It's grayness between the words. Even the visual, right? Even yeah. the visual of noise, at least how humans understand the visual representation of noise is in the wavelength, is in fuzzy, is in blurry, uh-huh. is in lines that move up and down and are hard to discern, as, as you're saying. Which can be measured. And I think if you look at... Um, a lot of the early 20th century literature that dealt with noise as like a specific technical problem in communication systems. We see that noise can be something that can be ruled out and measured. It can be traced, and because it can be traced, it can be mitigated or cut out, like the interference of too many wires processing too much electricity that's screwing up like an internet connection between two computers or something like that. So there is that definite dimension of noise, but noise to me is also a matter of context. You know, what is noisy to me may not necessarily be noisy to you. Part of the reason why I got interested in noise in my studies, which I would say happened about three or four years ago, so near the beginning of my PhD, I, I had an opportunity to participate in my first academic panel. And uh, somebody said to me, well, you know, it's going to deal with architecture and it's going to deal with politics and it's going to deal with this, that and the other thing. What do you want to say? I don't know. Nothing that I'd done up until that point prepared me to participate in my first academic panel. I was always lost in the confusion and ambiguity of my own insecurity. I don't know what I could possibly say. Imposter syndrome, right? Exactly. Imposter syndrome. I don't know what it is that I could say that would be meaningful or helpful. But I did recall going through Pearson International Airport, and I remember going through a very, very noisy security inspection space that I personally found exceedingly difficult to deal with, which led me to researching things like acoustic ecology and, you know, the physical measurement of noise, and then the other side being the philosophy of noise, which says that noise is always a matter of context. So I get to this point of delivering this paper on security and architecture and noise, acoustic noise. And I finish and I say to myself, yes, I I think I can confidently say I'm going to build a doctoral thesis that has to do with physical noise as a philosophical problem and physical noise as a measurable problem and then throw in some privacy and serve some surveillance and communication studies theories and i'll just figure it out as i go watch a leafs game have a beer and it's all (laughs) fine and dandy but then somebody says to me in the panel uh in the audience the very first question i received actually was i uh don't know that your noise is the same noise as mine i don't know that how you dealt with or experienced that security inspection space tom is meaningful beyond your experience And a lot of people looked at me trying to gauge, you know, what it is that I thought in the moment. Some people were kind of defensive in the audience. Some people agreed. 
You could tell by their body language. There's a lot to take from that initial moment. And then what this individual had said thereafter was that, I've been through that security inspection space that you've been through, and I didn't find it problematic. In fact, I found it quite enjoyable. So I asked why, and what he said to me really surprised me. He said, I was at a, a house party in Spain this past summer. I've been living in Spain for a few summers now, actually. And I initially hated going to them because you would sit in a small room in a very, very hot apartment at the top of a high rise, and it would be smoky, and it would be loud. There'd be music pumping and people screaming at each other, and they'd be playing poker, and all sorts of chaos would be going on. But he got used to it, and he said a lot of Spanish youth find comfort in being in a noisy environment. That just God-struck me. I didn't know how to respond to that. And so when we sit down and we build a podcast, about what's that noise. I, I've always been interested in pointing some of our subject matter towards not just noise itself, but what it is that you, as an interviewee or as an interviewer, see as noise. Why is it noise to you? What seems confu confusing and ambiguous to you because of the things that you've learned about the world and how you've engaged it? And how can we work through that together? When I listen to people talk on the radio now, where I see headlines and I start reading, you know, the body of a text about the noise coming out of the Trump's White House, the Trump administration's White House. If I uh, hear about noise through fake news, not everybody is going to find the same noise. And I think this is going to be a really interesting journey for us just because of that alone. Yeah, I, I, I think getting the perspective of someone new in a topic that you're unfamiliar with centered around this idea of what you call noise, I think I call fuzziness, blurriness, blind spots, something that is at the margins of what we think we know and how those margins are actually not margins at all. They're just uh, barriers to understand what's really happening or, or what potentially is really happening from a particular perspective. And I think we agree on that. It's all about perspective here. Yeah, I do think it's, it's always about perspective, because I don't think you and I, given how we're trained, the kind of things that you and I instruct, the kind of things that you and I research, ever compels us to admit, for example, or uh, s suggest to the world that there is like a real reality, that there is a, an ultimate code to the universe and how everything plays out as a matter of an actual perspective, the perspective that can be figured out by using the proper toolkits. I think that's a bunch of BS. What we're interested in is framing. Yeah. Figuring out how people see the world, what they see as problematic, and what they feel they need in order to produce some sort of clarity. There's an abundance of information circulating around us. There's an abundance of a lack of information circulating around us. The more we globalize, the more we become interconnected, especially through platforms at Facebook, like Facebook that have, you know, seen a hit of what a hundred billion dollars lost in the last 10 days alone because of this Cambridge Analytica fiasco it's just absolutely mind-boggling on that note I think that's a wonderful transition to our sort of first topic uh, which would be this Cambridge Analytica thing so I ask you Tommy what's the noise there well that's a big question it's a massively big question the noise with regards to Cambridge Analytica for me is not knowing precisely what has happened. 
we have we have insights into key developments that we received through leaks. I look at the Cambridge Analytica development and I say to myself, wow, this is a lot like the Edward Snowden thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's centered around a whistleblower. And this time it was a Canadian. Mm-hmm. A Canadian whistleblower that works for Cambridge Analytica leaks documents showing that as early as 2014, this organization had been working with Facebook and manipulating users to produce feedback on opinion polls, data that was not only mishandled and misused and misappropriated, but became a window for stealing information from friends on that network that somehow is used to assist somebody like Donald Trump get into office? Hold on a second. Let's see if we can piece this together for a minute. A Canadian whistleblower comes out and says as early as 2014, data had been stolen, data had been misused from 50 million users, 19 million of which are Canadian. Well, I don't know that as an empirical figure, but there are 19 million Canadian Facebook users. And somehow, this data was used to manipulate people's psychological interactions with the, the Facebook the platform itself in order to encourage people to think about Donald Trump more than Hillary Clinton when it comes to the American presidential election. My mind thinking about noise here, how does all of this happen? What's the impetus? What were the small points that connect one big moment to the next? How do we get from early 2014 to the end of the year alone? How do we end up sitting here in 2018 having a conversation about $100 billion in lost revenue in response to things that have been coming out of of these revelations in the last 10 days and then the FTC in the U.S. launching an investigation just a matter of hours ago? For me, the confusion is going to come in the next year of trying to make sense of this because I don't think there is a lot of clarity in what we're learning right now. Do you think that this is new? Do you think that the, the, we're hearing about this now? We're hearing about uh, this is the news story of the day in March 2018. Do you think these practices are new? I was a fan of House of Cards. And I don't know. Great, do you watch great show? show, by the way. I watched that religiously. So uh, I'm not a fan of Kevin Spacey. Not anymore. No, certainly not anymore. Um, but in the third season, I believe, uh, the entire season centered around this new presidential candidate that was using this targeted algorithm to uh, basically target a particular voting population. If House of Cards can think about it and can draft up a, a, an amazing uh, season of uh, episodes about this very topic, why are we surprised? Science fiction has been contributing to these sort of ideas for a long time. Artificial intelligence isn't new. Facebook had been messing around with artificial intelligence algorithms since Leon Kuhn's uh, experiments, I think, in the early 1990s. This is not new. Bell Labs had been talking about artificial intelligence well before the House of Cards came up with it. And so, you know what? You're right. None of this is news, but why are we surprised? It's the size of it. The size of it is what's really confusing and frightening. 50 million people on Facebook outright are manipulated, their data is stolen, and now there are implications about 
tilting the outcome of the last presidential election. When you were studying in the U.S., Barack Obama was president. Yes. What yes. the heck for was that like? For most of it. How, so when you finished, you, you got the job here at Western University in the beginning of the summer of 2017. So you, you went down while Obama was in the White House and you came back to Canada with Trump. Yes, that is, uh, that is accurate. Can yes. we find any clairvoyance in terms of answering your question just by virtue of that experience? Uh, certainly. The, yeah, the experience was, uh, was fascinating. Experiencing uh, a presidential election was massively interesting, but particularly experiencing that election from the southern United States in South Carolina in a hard red state. Um, but even more than that, to add some noise to that, in a blue county in a red state. Um, so the county that I was living in in South Carolina was actually, uh, actually went Hillary Clinton's way, but the rest of the state did not. Uh, the rest of the state almost overwhelmingly went Donald Trump. Uh, and while I was there, I got to experience the, uh, the noise that is the presidential campaign, and, and I saw every candidate come through Columbia, South Carolina. In fact, a, an interesting story is Bernie Sanders called me. Uh, I'm not particularly a, f a fan of Bernie or Hillary or Donald, <laughs> Bernie but Sanders. Bernie Sanders called me a very smart dude or a very smart man. It's on my Instagram. You can see it. Um, uh, so I'm not going to call out my Instagram here. But I feel like 10 times more famous than I did before we began <laughs> as so a result of knowing that. He was, it was at a town hall, and it's, so, it's funny because Bernie Sanders... Uh, Right before Bernie Sanders came to the University of South Carolina campus, there was a Republican uh, town hall or something on in the law school at the University of South Carolina, and it was like packed. They jammed the entire. Uh, there was CNN. There was like uh, interviewers, like news people everywhere. And then Bernie Sanders comes in, and he gets put in like a weird small auditorium uh, in the student center. And there were like, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 people in there, which was interesting. Just that in and of itself, right? Donald Trump and, and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz come and they get the, the trucks and trucks and trucks of audio equipment. And then Bernie Sanders walks in and his little like, it looked like he was doing a college lecture, like sociology 101. He looks like a professor, doesn't he? He kind of does. And he sounds like it. And he's got the sort of uh, the 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 mannerisms of it if you will did he have uh leather elbow patches he did he did do um, you have leather elbow patches? i do not i do not and i don't think i ever will hey man i'm seriously reaching uh reaching into some consideration about slamming that laptop lid shut unless you game up here <laughs> i i do try to to uh, I, I do try to keep my fashion in order for for students i try to keep hip but i don't know about the the uh, the elbow pads. There. Dr. Eric Derek Silva. <laughs> I can't even pronounce your name. I'm so confused by you right now. Let me try that again. Dr. Derek Silva is fashioning a, what do you call that? Black zip up, full zip. You've even got zippers on the side of the sweater, but no leather elbow patches. No. You should consider keeping your elbows off the table for the remainder of the podcast so you don't wear your sweater out. So you're telling me that you have elbow pads. 
I, I think I, I have four. Do you teach in those? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> well, I stopped using them last year, but I have four four such uh, sports jackets upstairs in my closet right now. Three of which I don't fit into anymore. Gotten too fat or too muscular. I think my girlfriend will comment uh, probably in favor of the former and not the latter. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I, I have these jackets and they've got leather uh, elbow patches on them, but I usually just sort of rock a t-shirt and, and do my thing. I want to bring this a little bit back to the Cambridge Analytica thing, just a little bit. I want us to start thinking or potentially thinking about whether or not this is new. And I asked this question and I'm going to re-ask it in a little bit of a different way. And what I mean by that is, have political parties been using some of these technologies for a long time and we just haven't thought about it or cared. The manipulation of ideas in order to portray some sort of image that is favorable for some parties and not so favorable for others, absolutely. This is not new. This is part of what hinges upon the definition of politics for many people. Of course, it depends upon who you talk to. But some of the theorists that we studied growing up, like Foucault, have a lot to say about noise and silence in the sense that any time you engage in a conversation there is a stake to convince the person that you're engaged with that you are correct and so misinformation lies white lies outright deceit there's a whole bunch of different tactics and techniques that can be used that are not always truthful and perhaps even empty in order to persuade somebody you know there's a lot of Truth and power being produced by just doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can have a conversation like this and make people listen to us, or maybe they're going to choose maybe to listen hope. to us. Maybe hope. hope that they'll listen to us. Hope. So no, I, I definitely do not think this is necessarily a new thing. And I'm glad you pulled us back to the question about noise and making sense of Cambridge Analytica. And I initially touched on the size. What I do think is unprecedented here is the size. Mm-hmm. To think about 50 million people being compromised by mismanagement and theft, to have it explicated by a whistleblower again, you know, there's been a lot of whistleblowing in the last few years, and when we start to think about the utility of these kinds of things, I start to see a little bit of clarity and a whole bunch of noise that we didn't even really know that was taking place. I think as a researcher in surveillance and privacy, not just noise. Noise is an occasion for me. I am predominantly a privacy and surveillance researcher. Something that I've always wondered is how we know what we know. The Snowden leaks have been a huge catalyst for our fields with regards to figuring out how surveillance actually works. So these PowerPoints come out, and we look at the PowerPoint slides, and some of them talk about X key score, and then some other ones talk about PRISM. Right? And the National Security Agency, and there's some pictures of Bluffdale, Utah, <laughs> with a nuclear reactor in the side of a mountain in a predominantly Mennonite community that has like a John Deere outlet or something in it, mm-hmm. and maybe a Walmart, and that's about it. And then a whole bunch of space put aside for this massive facility that's said to hold the entirety of human knowledge, all human knowledge, eight times over without breaking a sweat. We knew about surveillance because we found some PowerPoint slides from Snowden. And we learned a lot from that. We raised a lot of hard questions as a field. We pushed a lot of people in government 
really, really hard to give us answers. And we generated a bunch of theories. And before you knew it, Derek, we were talking about all of these analogies to help explain these really complex, wild things in our minds. We, we talked about rhizomes. We talked about the structure of plants underground and how they reach really far sideways and not very deep down into the earth in order to grab a whole bunch of institutions and piggyback all of their information collection techniques. We talked about folded strips of ribbon. A Mobius strip. A Mobius strip or something, right? We talked about Mobius strips folded over pieces of ribbon that were shining one side and dull on the other. And we use those analogically in order to make sense of how surveillance works. But all of this hinges upon these leaks of PowerPoint slides. I've never actually played with X-Keyscore. I've never played with Prism. I've never been inside of the NSA, and I'm never going to be. I know a little bit more now about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica because somebody leaked it again. But I still don't have a strong sense of certainty. But as a researcher, I am compelled to continue asking those same hard questions and to build new theories to make sense of something that is very noisy to me. And it always has been that way, Derek, because I've never actually touched any of it. How do we start, as a, a scientific community, finding the ways or the tools to clarify that noise or to make sense of that noise that you're alluding to? We look at what has been contributed thus far. And we continue moving forward um, in terms of the gaps, in terms of the absences and the blind spots. Here's what I mean by this. Actually, I'll preface that by saying that we're talking about social theories. When I talk about trying to build an understanding in my mind's eye with colleagues in my field about how surveillance works, about how data mining takes place in the first place, with an organization like Cambridge Analytica, I could obviously move towards the technical understandings. Let's look at computer science code. Let's look at wires. Let's look at technology. Let's break the black box open and see what's going on inside so that we can tell people, oh, that's how surveillance works. I have clarity now. There's no more noise here. Our field doesn't really do that. Our field builds social theories. Yes, they are conceptual, abstractions in the sense that we're trying to build big frameworks of how people are implicated. It's not just how surveillance works inside of the government south of the border. It's how it works in relation to what it hurts, in terms of how it prevents people from, from traveling across the world, about how it prevents certain kinds of refugees from properly becoming citizens here in Canada, or even finding refugee status somewhere in the world that isn't abhorrently violent them. So what we've taken from surveillance and privacy studies right now, leading up to this Cambridge moment after Snowden's leaks, is a very, very large imaginary net that is grounded in certain kinds of documents. But what we don't have, what we don't really have in terms of literacy as, as scholars in this field is the ability to break things open and to look at surveillance data, to look at bits as they're moving, to see if we can start reverse engineering an understanding of the pathways that they go through, how they've been hijacked by state security and surveillance agencies, and what role corporations are playing in the middle. 
And I, I, we've had this conversation several times over many a beer, uh, you and I, Tommy. Um, but one of the questions here, the key question here is, is a question of methodology. It's quite a question of how to gather data, collect data, and analyze data when the data is, at, on the one end, highly technical, and on the other hand, highly secretive. So these two things that are happening, often this data is collected under the guise of being protected and being encrypted and, and very, very difficult to, uh, to find, identify, and collect. And on the other hand, uh, it, it's also technical. It requires some technical skill. Where do we go forward in this quest to understand this, the, the, the data and the noise related to, to privacy and surveillance? That's a fantastic question. And I think that the majority of people that we're going to force to listen to our first podcast are going to say, well, come on, guys. I mean, obviously, the answer is an interdisciplinary academic commitments. It's about working with people who know more about you in certain areas. Interdisciplinary in the sense that you work with other disciplines that are not in your immediate purview because it's going to yield certain kinds of outcomes. My master's was in American studies. I studied political science as much as I studied sociology and economy and international relations. You're a sociologist? I don't know. I think so. (laughs) Let's just say yes for now. Political sociology. I studied American literature. I read Moby Dick obsessively for the first four months of my degree. My PhD is in a kind of hybrid communication studies, which on its own terms is a combination of anthropology and sociology and political studies and political economy and theories, obsessing theories about how communication and networks actually works. So we we can work with computer scientists. We can work with people that do data forensics. We can work with computer engineers. And I have. And we can start having a conversation about how the technical things relate to the social things. And they do. Technical things do not exist in their own place in the world. It's not a realm where social things don't exist or political things don't exist. And I think this might actually be part of the problem. It's not just that we, we you, know, you and I, in surveillance studies and privacy studies and, and terrorism studies, don't know technical things as well as a computer engineer. It's also because the technical things that we have to study are inherently political. That's what I believe. Here's what I mean by that. You and I recently led a workshop in one of my classes where we had students looking at HTTP cookies in real time. We downloaded software that made it very visible for our students what companies were installing tracking software and little bits of tracking information that could be recollected later as they were being installed and as those cookies were transmitting data back towards the company's mainframes and server farms and such. And something really interesting that we learned together, you and I and the students, was that even if you capture a cookie and you open it up, there's only certain things you can learn. You can learn what the cookie is called. You can learn about how long it's going to exist on your computer before it expires and is, is naturally deleted. You can learn about where it is on your computer physically and where it's going to. But the content of the cookie, for example, one that records 
mouse movements on your screen. That data is recorded in the cookie, but you can't make sense of it, Derek. And I can, as Tom, make sense of it. Because that data is a reflection of how the designer of that cookie decided to pick certain variables. They had, there's a, dis, a definition process behind the picking of variables that creates data about the movement of a pointer on a screen. And it only makes sense in the context of that particular programmer's context. So we, we can't make sense of it unless we go and we hire that specific programmer or that, and it, that person's specific employer. It, it's not going to make sense to us. There's always politics. There's a little bit of political ease, as my friend Al Coombs might say, in the background with these sort of things. And so we're always going to be at the mercy of the things that we can't figure out because people are encouraged to program the world in ways that fit their worldview. And Which not is social. Ours. Which is a completely, uh, as you put it, political, but it is a social project. The, the moment something becomes... I see the political part for sure, but you're mm -hmm. going to have to explain to me a little bit what you mean by it well, being social. Politics is a representation of uh, a particular society and a particular worldview that is ingrained uh, in a societal context. Well, if that doesn't prove that you're a sociologist, then nothing will. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely not a political scientist. Uh, <laughs> uh, nothing against the political scientist who m might be listening to this uh, particular podcast, but uh, uh, I definitely am a sociologist and view things through the, the social lens. And I think that that particular workshop was fascinating um, for me personally to see what the students were getting out of it in terms of opening their eyes uh, to uh, something that they hadn't even had experience with uh, in the f uh, ever in their in their lives they'd never even heard what a cookie was and now they're visualizing the networks of cookies when they search twitter or uh, look up uh, aritzia i think a few of the students loved aritzia which is a uh, a, a nice uh, retailer here. They make shoes? Uh, shoes and, and uh, clothes in general, I think. Aritzia. Uh, yeah, I think like nice. I don't know personally. I don't, I don't particularly shop there, but I, I know that they shop or that they It's, are, it's coming uh, back to me now. I remember the, the purses and the different colors and mm -hmm. stuff that were on the screen in the lecture hall that day. But it, what, what really struck out to me in that instance was the fact that the students were starting to make sense of this thing that they didn't even know really existed. And once they knew that it existed, once they knew that there was this thing called a cookie, then visualizing it forced them to try to understand. And I think you're missing one very, very important part of that workshop was we challenged students to go look up some of those cookies and what they. Uh, what they were about and, and explaining uh, or trying to explore what they were doing, what information they were collecting. And this highlights how we can potentially move forward in this discipline. Because when we search some of those cookies, you can search them in Google, and some Google pages will tell you what those cookies do. And that is the, the, the process of interdisciplinary knowledge production and sharing somebody else is telling us what the, that cookie does and somebody else with technical knowledge is telling us what that cookie does and by that interdisciplinary 
discussion, we're understanding what a cookie is uh, at a level that we might not have otherwise understood. And I think that that is a potential way to move forward in this, uh, in the study of, of internet surveillance. I think that that is the, the future in, in many respects of studying surveillance, of understanding the technical aspects of, uh, of tracking and of surveillance and of geotagging and of Snapchat and Instagram and all of these things that are collecting so much information willingly. We give it to them. But our next step is to understand how that information is being used. I heard before you came here that you were a stickler for empirical research. That would be true. And it's making a lot of sense now. And I, admittedly, you've really impressed this upon me. My research has never really been empirics first. And I totally appreciate and value the, necessi- the necessity excuse me, and the, val- and the importance of uh, grounding theory. You can't just float. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. But, 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 my first starting point has always been abstraction and theory. I like philosophy. I like staying up high in the stratospheres of sociology and comm studies and all this other stuff, right? It's been really interesting for me as a researcher is this transition just by your influence alone into making sense of the gaps, recognizing that in surveillance studies and privacy studies, that we really haven't attended to these technical things in detail. We really haven't worked with individual data and started to theorize from the bottom up. I think we've done a really good job of getting close to it, but I don't think there are any specific discernible research projects that really flesh out those, those connections directly. And so in a lot of ways, that workshop that day was really helpful um, for looking at the the HTTP cookies directly, seeing which companies they went back to, and then learning a little bit more about the company's history, who else they worked with. It was interesting to see that, you know, within three minutes, less than three minutes, man, more like a minute and a half, we had people go to, starting point was CanadianTire.com, or .ca, excuse me, and then to Aritzia, and then to Western University's website. And we started populating something like 500 different third-party tracking companies that were giving HTTP cookie installation scripts to those three websites. Hundreds of third-party cookie companies, data miners, data brokerage companies that were connecting all three of these websites together in real time. It was, it was mind-blowing, mind-boggling, absolutely. What I'm really excited to continue looking for moving forward is piecing together some other different types of data. We know that HTTP cookies are fundamental um, to the function of surveillance in the state itself. We know that they're fundamentally important for protecting privacy as well. But there are other different kinds of, of data that don't really factor into cookies and don't really factor into um, other kinds of technologies. Uh, for example, I, I don't really know a lot about how uh, a Facebook facial algorithm, a face detection algorithm relates to my cookies. There's a lot of these, these other questions or that need to be like figured Apple out. Apple and their face ID to get into your phone, is that connected to other programs and other, do I think? No. Do I know? No. Studying the biological features of my face. That's a huge empirical challenge for me. I'm only starting to learn about bloody coding now for cookies, right? 
So I'm going to do the best that I can carrying that flag forward in, in upcoming research. And other people are going to go and learn about biometric measurements. And there's lots of people that do it really, really well. And we will have many people working together. And by combining technical observations with social descriptions, economic considerations, political questions, we're going to continue theorizing about society's relationship to surveillance and perceptions of privacy. One thing that I'm really excited about in terms of trying to generate some understanding and some clarity in response to the Cambridge Analytica stuff is figuring out what the technical literacy is like in this country. The last time that a major study was published in this country by the, offices, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, I think it was just a few years ago, maybe 2014, Phoenix Communication Systems interviewed thousands of Canadians and had determined that Canadians really care about their privacy. They really are concerned about how corporations not only handle data that they can't see, but mishandle data that they can't see. They are concerned about being implicated when they travel. They are concerned about being picked up wrongfully by a scanner on a, a, a police officer's cruiser or by CBSA agents, right? But a lot of time has transpired since then. The Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada is mandated to ensure accountability and transparency between government and corporations as they handle information about us, when they handle data about us. But that last study that was conducted by Phoenix Communication Systems suggests that Canadians don't know enough empirically about how data moves. But the discourse, the debate about surveillance and privacy since then has really ramped up. A lot more people seem to be concerned. Look what's happening to Facebook right now. The delete Facebook movement? I think there's a natural curiosity here. I think there is a bit of a social consciousness emerging right now that is probably going to surprise a lot of us as researchers in saying that Canadians are more willing now to learn about how to take privacy into their own hands through alternative, crazy, wide, wild, weird softwares that we experimented with in our classrooms recently to figure out how they can cut off data mining as it happens. Wouldn't that be a thing? Wouldn't it be interesting for you and I to revisit this later or find somebody that we can interview like David Lyon or Benjamin Shout out Muller. to David Lyon. Shout out to David Lyon in a big, big, big way. And Ben Muller as well, and, and numerous others. Either of you, if you're listening, give us a shout uh, at Derek Krim. And what's your Twitter? I don't remember. At Tommy N. Cook, I think. Thomas Tom, at Thomas, Tom, N. At Thomas N. Cook. Give us, give us a little uh, slide into our DMs there. <laughs> It'll be really interesting to revisit these conversations with people who have been in the field, created the field for us, so you and I can even have these conversations to talk about technical literacy. Because I think the young people who are implicated by this Canberra Analytica uh, incident the most, the people who are really offset the most, are the kind of people that have the knowledge and the insight that you and I need. It's, it's the, the young generation of Canadians on Facebook, the people that are involved in hacktivist communities, the people that are involved in open source programming communities, the young kids that are learning how to code on their own time. There is an emergence of this kind of interest and preoccupation which wasn't there for you and i when we were going through school we're not even that old you're 30 and i'm 33 this year i think 31 this year so so it's it's going to be very interesting to re revisit these conversations and see 
what we can uh, figure out here in terms of technical and social things wedding together so that we can continue driving like an empirical project to revitalize and reinvigorate the theories that we use to make sense of surveillance and privacy in the world. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And I think that the, the, the key here is to uh, refocus our attention on trying to figure out how the component parts work, how to make sense of the data process where something moves from uh, an, a human interaction with a computing device to uh, a aggregate, to an aggregate data uh, point on that interaction, to a political project, to an intervention. And all of that entire process needs to be explored with a little bit more methodological rigor, uh, which I think you've heard from me several times. Uh, as a scholar who is very interested in in methodology and and empirical analysis, um, well, I'll be damned if it wouldn't come up. I was sort of expecting this, and I'm glad it did, Derek. I think the the way to to make sense of the noise, uh, to clear the noise, to clear those wavelengths, is to try to collect data. To and the first the first way of doing that is to first theorize about what data is when data is in a digital form i think we are still at that point something that's been really mutually productive for both of us is that we are in obvious agreement about where the noise is with regards to cambridge analytica and facebook in general in particular excuse me and privacy and surveillance in general it will be interesting to see what guests we will have on the show in the future that are going to see a very different kind of noise maybe our noise is not noise to David Lyon or no. Benjamin Muller, but I guess we're going to find out. That's I, the whole purpose, I, right? I suspect that that's going to be the intention of these podcasts, then, is not just for you and I to have conversations, but to interview other people. We've already said enough in this episode about Ab- our own noises, so why don't we consider opening it up to others? Absolutely. I think that's where this podcast is going, and if you are interested, please tune in to the next episode of What's That Noise, where we will be discussing somebody else's noise. Um, some some noise to an, an alternative perspective, uh, if you will. So thank you, Tommy. Do you have any closing remarks? I need to blow my nose. I've been wiping it as, as quietly as I can without making any noise. And we need do to we finish know- the end of this Leaf game yeah, because it is tied. It's tied 1-1. One, one, one. And we always lose to the Sabres. <laughs> well, catch us next time on, on What's That Noise. Uh, thank you for listening. Hit us up on Twitter. I'm at uh, Derek Krim. Uh, Tommy is at thomas n cook apparently that's an e on the end of cook thank you uh and uh until next time what's that noise <laughs>